me, Snake. S.D. Pliskin. American, Lieutenant, Special Forces Unit, Black Light. Two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. Youngest men to be decorated by the President. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. I'm ready to kick your ass out of the world, war hero. Who are you? Hauk. Police Commissioner. Why are we talking? I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you've committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war or your president. Happy Halloween 2018, everybody. CJ here, wielding the Louisville slugger of dangerous history against the putrid pumpkins of conventional establishment narratives. I've decided to deviate from my traditional ghost story Halloween episodes this year in order to bring you some different Halloween-themed DHP with that, you know, lovely pumpkin spice tinge that seems oh so popular in everything in recent years. This is going to be something I've been thinking about doing for a while, and it's just perfect to do it this year, this October, October of 2018, which is the 40th anniversary of the original Halloween film, and also is a time when there is a decent sequel to Halloween in the box office kicking some serious butt. And I did see the new Halloween movie with the wife and kids about a week ago, and I have to say it was pretty good. I don't think it was perfect. There were a few things about it I didn't like, but overall I thought it was a pretty good Halloween film and certainly, in my opinion, superior to any of the other sequels or remakes or what have you. In other news, as I'm finishing this episode up, I'm also getting ready to head north to Cambridge, Massachusetts to attend and speak at the Sound Education Podcast Conference at Harvard, and I'll be leaving the day after Halloween. I'll be speaking at 3.10 p.m. on Friday, November 2nd in Room 117 of Andover Hall, if any of you are interested in attending. 
And in yet other news, work continues on my finishing up of the Not-So-Civil War series, though I suffered a massive and absolutely infuriating setback recently, when I apparently somehow lost the file that contained about two hours of audio towards the next Civil War episode that I had already recorded and edited. Now, that episode wasn't done. I still had some more segments left to do on it. But I had two hours that were done on the next one, not the episode I I put out last, but the upcoming one, which may very well be the last one if I make it a big one. I had it recorded and edited, and somehow I lost the file. Now, I'm still going to try a few more things I haven't tried yet to try to get it back, but... It's just fucking horrible that this happened. I mean, I wanted to slam my head into a wall when I realized what had happened and that all that work was flushed down the drain. You know, I still have my notes from that stuff, so I can re-record it and recreate it if I have no other option and I'm just completely unable to recover that file. But just imagine how that feels. The hours of recording and more and more hours of editing possibly all just flush down the toilet. I mean, believe me, the word pissed doesn't begin to describe how I feel about this whole thing. Um, Crossing my fingers, I'll be able to figure something out to salvage the situation. But at a certain point, if I can't fix it, I'm going to have to just start over and redo all that work. But anyway, enough of my gripes. On with this episode. There are a lot of different influences on my worldview and attitude, some of which I'm sure I'm probably not even aware of, but many of which I am. And most of these influences, if they're significant, are the sorts of people you'd kind of consider quote-unquote intellectuals on some level, generally meaning people who think and speak and write in a non-fiction serious sort of a genre about big issues and big questions ranging from philosophy to history to economics and so on. But there are two major influences on my overall worldview and attitude that are definitely not the sorts of people who are generally considered first and foremost quote-unquote intellectuals, at least not in the normal usage of that word. Whether rightly or wrongly, these guys would not be put in that category by most people, even though I would on some level definitely consider them intellectuals, just perhaps not in the conventional sense. Now, one of these two influences is a guy whom I've covered in a DHP episode a while back, namely the late stand-up comedian George Carlin. And the other is the subject of this current episode you're listening to, John Carpenter, who is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, and a major influence in many ways on how I see and think about the world, and even some of my views regarding just kind of like aesthetics and and mood and tone and ways of looking at things. So this month, as I'm making this episode, October 2018, is actually a round number anniversary of two extremely important horror films. 
both of which essentially became archetypical films of their respective subgenres. And here's what I mean. It's, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the 40th anniversary of the release of the original Halloween film, and it's also the 50th anniversary of the release of Night of the Living Dead. These are both films that have a huge cult following right on up through the present, including myself, and these are films both of which were made on very small budgets by nonetheless visionary filmmakers who were able to make cheap movies do things they're not supposed to do in terms of quality. I'll post a link to the show notes in this episode back to DHP episode 107, which is called Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War, which is my talk from the 2016 Porkfest event in New Hampshire. And I'll also put a link to my episode on George Carlin for anyone who's not checked that episode out too. That, that one's, I think, even a bit older than my Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War episode. Part of my Porkfest presentation includes some coverage of the making of Night of the Living Dead, which is a masterpiece of kind of low-resources but high-resourcefulness filmmaking. Director George Romero really pulled something off with that film, making a low-budget movie that became a classic, and I and many other people would argue, made it into a true work of art and set the standard for a whole subgenre, i.e. the zombie film. Ten years after Night of the Living Dead, another filmmaker, John Carpenter, made Halloween. And while Carpenter had a little bit more in the way of resources to make that film than Romero had for Night of the Living Dead, it still was, by Hollywood standards, a very low-budget flick that also required a huge amount of resourcefulness and creativity to make. And like Night of the Living Dead, it became an archetype and work of art that set the standard for a whole subgenre as well. And in this case, the subgenre would be the so-called slasher films. Both films, Night of the Living Dead and Halloween, would spawn a countless array of copycats and sequels and so forth, few of which are anywhere in the ballpark of the original. Now, when one begins to read books and articles and watch documentaries and interviews to do research on John Carpenter, as I've obviously been doing in recent weeks and months, one word that keeps coming up in regard to him and his filmmaking career is the word auteur. This is a word I've heard occasionally and sort of had a vague sense that it meant something like a unique and gifted filmmaker with a distinctive style, but I kept coming across it in researching Carpenter, so I decided to look it up to get a more precise, kind of formalized sense of the word. So, according to Wikipedia, for what it's worth, the term came out of mid-20th century film criticism. Wikipedia says, quote, an auteur is an artist, such as a film director, who applies a highly centralized and subjective control to many aspects of a collaborative creative work. In other words, a person equivalent to an author of a novel or a play. The term is commonly referenced to filmmakers or directors with a recognizable style or thematic preoccupation. End quote. 
Another defining characteristic of an auteur is that they often work in a particular genre or genres, but they produce work that in some way kind of transcends those genres. And I think John Carpenter fits all of these different denotations and connotations of an auteur. In Carpenter's case, he mostly has worked in the genres of science fiction, horror, and action, oftentimes blending one or more of these together. And many of his films he not only directed, but also wrote the screenplay for, and often created the musical score as well, and sometimes did other things. And sometimes you'll see him credited for some of these other jobs besides directing under a pseudonym in the credits of the film. Looking at his body of work, for the most part, in my view at least, the films in which he did the most aspects of the process himself are mostly the ones that I consider to be his best, and the films in which he had less direct control over all the different aspects from top to bottom of making the film are often his weaker ones, although there's, I'll admit there's a few that he had a lot of direct control over that aren't so great, but, you know, nobody bats a thousand. In regard to Carpenter's films, another term keeps coming up, and the one that keeps coming up to describe a lot of his movies is the term cult film, or sometimes cult classic. And this term is probably a little bit more self-explanatory than auteur, but it's also a little bit blurry and kind of murky around the edges. And I've not seen any good dictionary-style definitions for this term, and sometimes it's used simply to describe the hardcore fan base of any particular film or film series or franchise. And sometimes it's even applied to mainstream hit movies in order to describe just the most fanatical fans of that particular film. But to me, when you're talking about a cult film or a cult classic, really, it typically denotes some film that was at least somewhat of a flop when it first came out in theaters, either financially or critically or perhaps both. Maybe it lost money or maybe it barely broke even or barely made a small profit when it came out in theaters. But it was on some level at least somewhat of a flop. But it is one that eventually becomes well-loved and develops a significant fan base in later years, usually through some combination of VHS in the older days, or DVD, or television, or more recently, streaming video viewing, depending on what decade we're talking about here. Sometimes, in the case of a cult film, or a film that becomes a cult film, even critics who initially panned in some cases, might eventually start to come around and realize the value of a film that they initially panned, and a movie that got bad reviews when it first came out might, years or even decades later, end up with a pretty decent or even good Rotten Tomatoes score. A bunch of John Carpenter's films fall into this category of cult film, perhaps even the majority of films that he's directed. In fact, I don't think I'm way out of whack when I propose here that John Carpenter may in fact be the absolute number one king of cult films, at least as of 2018, given the true meaning of the word as I mean it, meaning a movie that is not or was not appreciated by mainstream audiences, nor by critics, but which eventually develops a rabid following and in some cases even gets reevaluated positively by the critics. Michel LeBlanc and Colin O'Dell, in their book on John Carpenter, which is entitled simply John Carpenter, write, quote, 
There is an overriding vision, a consistency to Carpenter's work that rewards repeat viewing and presents a single unifying worldview, end quote. And I strongly agree with that overall assessment. While there are a few of his movies that I think don't fit in with his worldview, in general, his best movies tend to be the ones that play the most in the particular playground of his worldview. And it's a dark playground. Some might even say excessively pessimistic, paranoid, even apocalyptic at times, but it's a very interesting playground nonetheless, and one that often has its own idiosyncratic humor despite the darkness. There are certain themes and techniques and so on that recur again and again in different ways in his films, and so there's a very distinctive style to most John Carpenter films that if you've seen a few of them, you can spot it pretty quickly or sometimes just catch it by the soundtrack. And to a large extent, Carpenter reminds me of kind of a film director equivalent of someone like a Howard Rourke or a Frank Lloyd Wright in that he's a unique creative force with his own unique style and he rarely compromises his overall vision. This was originally going to be a single episode on the life and career of John Carpenter, but then as it started to grow, I realized I better split it into two pieces so that I could at least get the first half of it out in time before the end of October. So this episode you're listening to is going to cover Carpenter's career up to the film The Thing, which came out in 1982. Next episode will cover a lot of his later films, and also we'll dig a bit more into some of the common themes and techniques in Carpenter's work, and see if we can sketch some sort of a picture of his overall worldview by examining and thinking about both his words and his work, which often dovetail together neatly, but don't always. So look for that to come out approximately a week or maybe a little bit more after this episode. Also, spoiler alerts for this and next episode are perhaps obligatory, while most of these films are pretty old, and I'm not going to do super detailed plot synopses or anything like that, it's still possible I might inadvertently say a thing or two in this episode and the next one that might spoil some plot point or something in one of these films, so consider yourselves forewarned. Proceed at your own risk. John Carpenter was born in 1948 in Carthage, New York. His father was a professor of music and violinist who had a Ph.D. in music. And when John was five, the family relocated to Bowling Green, Kentucky, where his father was taking a job as a music professor at the local college. 
Speaking about all this as an adult, John says that he immediately felt like an outsider, even as a little kid. He could just tell that because he and his family were Yankees, they didn't fit in, and he always felt like somewhat of an outsider or a foreigner. In an interview with, I think it's Giles or Gilles, I'm not sure, Bullinger, which is published in Bullinger's 2003 book, John Carpenter, The Prince of Darkness. It's basically just a whole big book of Carpenter interviews with Bullinger. Carpenter reflected on some of the discomfort he had, even as a little kid, with this move. Quote, Not just the climate and the visual look, but the people. This was a very, very small town, a farm town, where people grew a lot of tobacco, and, and it was in the middle of the Bible Belt. End quote. Carpenter says that he and his family ended up living in a house on the college's campus that was actually a log cabin and supposedly was a replica of the home that Abraham Lincoln had grown up in. And he says that his family and their household were very separate, physically and metaphorically, from the rest of the local community. Carpenter said, quote, It was like another world. So that whole situation increased my personal sense of isolation. There was also a tremendous belief within this community in a supernatural God that controlled every moment, that controlled whether the rains were coming for the crops or not. He was a very hard punishment God. He would punish you if you were talking to black people. Somehow God didn't like that, end quote. In this same interview, he tells a story about how some guys that he knew in school, once when they were in high school, got some guns and went to the black part of town and drove around and shot at black people who were on their porches. And it's kind of unclear whether they actually hit any of these people or whether they were just kind of like, you know, shooting near them to to harass and scare them. Regardless, I mean, it's a pretty terrible story that you've got high school kids doing this. Carpenter also tells a story that a girl who was his girlfriend when he was a teenager once told him a story that her grandfather had actually deliberately driven his car into a black man who was crossing the street and killed the guy. Carpenter, for his part, said that he just never understood this amount of racial hatred and he didn't get the sort of religiosity that many of the community around him had. And so he always felt different and isolated until he eventually moved out of Kentucky as a young man. His father apparently encouraged a lot of independent thought in young John, telling him when John was around 11 that he ought to be skeptical of authority always, including even what his own father told him. From a very early age, John Carpenter was extremely interested in two things, music and movies. And in the film world, from very early on, he was particularly interested in sci-fi and horror films. For example, in 1953, he went to see the film It Came From Outer Space in the theater, and this made a huge early impression on him, even though he was only five when it happened. He still recalls it to this day and often brings it up in interviews when people ask about his interests and influences and his what, what drew him to horror and to sci-fi and so on. He also got into comic books for a while early on, and again tended to gravitate especially towards horror and sci-fi comics. And like I said, from an early age, he was also into music, no doubt in part because of the influence of his father. But he specifically started getting into rock music, beginning with seeing Elvis 
on TV, and he continued to be interested in rock music through his teen years, and eventually played in some bands. When he was only eight, his father gave him a rudimentary 8mm home movie camera, which included the capabilities for doing very rough editing by splicing film. And so from a very young age, he was making his own little homemade movies. This, by the way, is a common thing among many youngsters who eventually grow up to be filmmakers. So Steven Spielberg, for example, has a similar story, as do many others, of using some kind of rudimentary home movie system to make their own little movies from childhood, something that obviously today is like ridiculously easier. You can pretty much do way more with an iPhone than you could back then with an expensive and large and bulky camera and editing setup and so forth. When asked about the fact that he's been making movies in some fashion since he was about eight years old, Carpenter said, quote, It was an unnatural obsession then, and after a while it really became a compulsion. A compulsion to make films. And it still is today. Even now, I find myself unable not to pursue this career. End quote. He says that, even as a youngster, quote, I felt that I understood the language of movies. I think making movies was a way of making sense of the world I was living in. I was also drawn toward movies visually, because I have voyeuristic tendencies. Not being a native of Bowling Green, but being a foreigner, I was constantly looking at people, at buildings. I was trying to see what was going on. So I became a person who watched other people's behaviors." In 1968, after briefly going to college in Bowling Green, Carpenter got accepted into the University of Southern California's film school, which even back then was considered the nation's top university film program, and he was very happy to leave the small town in Kentucky that he'd chafed at living in since the age of five, and in many ways he found California to be a breath of fresh air. Carpenter says a lot of nice things about his experience as a student at USC's film school, and he says he learned a ton of the nuts and bolts craft of making film while attending USC. A short film that he worked on, along with a bunch of other students at USC, a Western called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, actually won an Academy Award and received a wider theatrical release being the first student film to do so in the United States. And that's another genre that Carpenter has always had an interest in, is the Western. As a kid, he loved a lot of Western films, and once he grew up, he actually wrote some Western scripts, none of which I think ever got made into movies. But as many people have pointed out, a lot of Carpenter's films have at least some elements of Westerns in them, even if they're not a Western film overall, even if they're a horror film or a sci-fi film or what have you. On the Subject of the impact of the resurrection of Bronco Billy winning the Oscar for Best Short Film in 1970, Carpenter said in an interview decades later that the school did kind of screw the students regarding the award and the money, and that after the ceremony, which only one member of the film's crew went to, quote, the next day the head of the department came in. He had the Oscar in a paper bag, and he let us look at it. We weren't treated very well on that movie, and that was the reason why I ended up taking Dark Star away from the school. We spend our own money on the resurrection of Bronco Billy to get it made, something like 2000 to 3000 bucks, including film and processing. The school had its own distribution branch, and they released the movie. 
They made a bunch of money on it, and they wouldn't consider sharing any of it with us. They wouldn't even consider reimbursing us. It was like we didn't own the movie. End quote. Now, despite these problems, Carpenter, right up until recent times, has generally said mostly very positive things about his overall experience at USC Film School, saying of it in a 2003 interview, quote, I can't say enough about the influence of USC on me. 75% of what I know I learned at school, end quote. After Bronco Billy, Carpenter teamed up with another USC film student named Dan O'Bannon, and they began working on a science fiction film called Dark Star, which was originally going to be their master's project at USC. It's a little hazy, the exact details of what happened, but it looks like they began it as a student film, but then they seem to have dropped out of USC in order to be independent, avoid those issues that Carpenter had regarding Bronco Billy, and turn the film into a feature film and keep full control of it in the process. Wikipedia indicates that Carpenter dropped out of USC while working on Dark Star, for what that's worth, but none of the other books I've read or documentaries or interviews I've watched, to my recollection, have said explicitly that he dropped out, but it seems like that's what happened, that he saw the opportunity to turn Dark Star into a feature film and decided to walk away from film school. So let's talk about what would become Carpenter's first real feature film, Dark Star, which was released, some sources say 1974, some say 1975. Like I said, this was Carpenter's first feature directing credit on a commercial film. He himself is referred to the movie as Waiting for Godot in Space. It's considered a sci-fi comedy, and from very early on, John Carpenter has always liked to blend multiple genres together in many of his films. By the way, Carpenter's co-writer and collaborator on this film, a guy named Dan O'Bannon, later went on to write the movie Alien, and it seems like there's definitely some influence that some of the things that were done in Dark Star were later expanded and developed into what would become Alien. The film follows the crew of the spaceship Dark Star, who have been out in space on sort of a scouting mission for 20 years. And they have a job which is basically to find and destroy unstable planets that might cause problems down the road for later people coming to colonize these far reaches of space. Both the ship and the crew are kind of deteriorating after all this time out there. And it's kind of a dark comedy, and apparently at some point they have to deal with an alien that's loose aboard the ship, is my basic understanding. I've not actually sat and watched this film, by the way. But obviously that would be an idea that O'Bannon would later develop much more fully in Alien. Stephen Smith writes in The John Carpenter Companion, quote, The film is essentially a hippie slacker comedy set in space and must surely have provided some inspiration for the creators of the television series Red Dwarf and perhaps for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, too. End quote. For distribution, Carpenter ended up doing a deal with a guy named Jack H. Harris, whose biggest claim to fame had been being the producer of the original The Blob in 1958. In the late 1960s, Harris's distribution company mostly did softcore pornography, although he'd also produced some other films, such as an early John Landis film called Schlock that he had done not long before connecting with John Carpenter. Apparently, Landis has said that he's the one who nudged Harris to work with John Carpenter, although John Carpenter seems to actually not be so sure about this. But regardless, Harris 
made Carpenter redo some things and improve some things on the film, finally got it up to kind of like minimum feature length. It's 80 some odd minutes. And it was finally released after being in the works for years. Despite its low budget and amateur actors, Darkstar got shown at the FilmX Film Festival and got, from what I can tell, relatively good reviews at the time, kind of grading it on a curve as a cheap movie done by rookies. But the movie did not begin to achieve cult classic status until the era of home VHS machines allowed it to be a lot more widely seen. One of the things that Carpenter's work on Dark Star has been praised for is his ability to cleverly create decent special effects on a very low budget through simple resourcefulness and creativity, something that comes up in some of his other films as well. LeBlanc and Odell write of it, quote, Clearly, for a low-budget film with such a high concept, the effects could not hope to match the blockbusters of 1974, let alone today's CGI-drenched efforts. But, surprisingly, they stand up very well and provide the film with much of its own charm. Yes, the alien looks like a painted beach ball with rubber glove claws, but it has something that 90% of the CGI minions of the Phantom Menace lack. Character. End quote. Darkstar was made for only $60,000, which was a joke of a budget, even in 1974 dollars. So, most reviews and commentaries I've seen that are talking about the film kind of graded on a curve accordingly, and end up saying that it looks a lot better than you'd expect based on that budget. Currently, Darkstar has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 79, which is not bad for what basically began as a student film, and which was done on a complete shoestring budget. Like I said, I've never actually watched Dark Star, so I don't really have an opinion on it. I've seen some little clips and things of it watching various documentaries about John Carpenter, but maybe one of these days I'll get around to actually watching it. I have a feeling from the little clips that I've seen of it that I'd probably think it was okay but not great, and maybe that combined with the fact that it's historically been a little bit harder to find relative to a lot of Carpenter's other films, maybe that explains why I've just never seen it. But then again, maybe my uh, guess is wrong and maybe I'd end up loving it, who knows? So it's one of these things that I need to check out when I have some extra time, which I have to say is seemingly never these days. At this point, Carpenter also began writing screenplays and selling them, and even made some decent money. And one of these films, The Eyes of Laura Mars, eventually did get made, but others did not. And Carpenter often says things in interviews like, a guy can make a great living making scripts that never get made. The next film that Carpenter himself actually created was Assault on Precinct 13, which came out in 1976. This was another low-budget film made on only about $100,000, so it was a bit more of a budget than Dark Star, but still not very much. Carpenter was the triple threat on this movie, writing it, directing it, and also doing the soundtrack, which a lot of his best movies, he's doing those three things, by the way. The film was a crime movie, but really in a lot of ways it was a western, just set in a modern American inner city because Carpenter wanted to make a Western, he loves Westerns, but he didn't have the budget to actually do a Western. And so Precinct 13 is basically Carpenter remaking Howard Hawks's Rio Bravo in a modern American urban city. 
the film depicts a dilapidated police precinct that's actually due to be shut down in a few hours, just like, you know, closed down, that comes under assault by a very vicious street gang who are trying to get revenge on the cops for killing some of their members. And this police precinct in a rough ghetto suburb in Southern California, like I said, it's supposed to be closed down in a matter of hours. And a newly promoted police lieutenant is put in command of kind of a skeleton crew at the precinct. And what ends up happening is that as the precinct comes under attack, this lieutenant and a murderer who they're actually holding prisoner at the time, along with the receptionist, have to kind of like work together and team up and put aside their differences to fight off this relentless gang. It's a violent exploitation film, but it's one that's definitely a cut above the average in that subgenre in terms of its craft. The film had a scene which depicted the murder of a young girl, and for this reason, the MPAA initially gave the film an X rating. But then Carpenter made a cut of the movie with that scene removed and got the MPAA to give it an R rating instead. And then after that, Carpenter went ahead and released the movie with the murder of the girl in it anyway and managed to get away with it. This film didn't do well in the States when it was released, but it was very well received at the 1977 London Film Festival. And as a result of that, it actually became a huge hit in Europe. So it's almost sort of like the story of Jimi Hendrix's career in a way, where he wasn't getting huge traction in the United States, then he goes to England and actually has some success, which then allows him to come back to the U.S. and be better off, you know, his, his star is rising, so to speak. One of the people that Carpenter worked with in making Precinct 13 was a woman named Deborah Hill, who would work together with him on several upcoming films as well, and with whom he began to have a relationship for a while. She was his girlfriend, apparently. Assault on Precinct 13 currently holds a Rotten Tomato score of 98, which I believe is the highest that any of Carpenter's films have. It's even a little bit higher than the original Halloween. And I have to say, it's a very good crime film. If you like hard-boiled crime, and you also like sort of cynical action-packed westerns where morally ambiguous characters find themselves in a tough situation and have to kind of work together, it, it really is a good film in that sort of vein. You know, if you appreciate the westerns of Elmore Leonard and also the crime fiction of Elmore Leonard, this is stuff that you'll enjoy. And yeah, it's kind of made on the cheap and cheesy, and some of it looks a little bit dated, but I think it holds up pretty well overall. An okay, but not as good remake of the film, not directed by Carpenter, by the way, was made in 2005, starring Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne. Assault on Precinct 13 was not a huge hit at the time, but it did allow Carpenter's star to rise a little bit and got him some contacts that eventually paved the way for him making his next film, which would end up being his most famous and iconic and also his most successful by most measures. And that, of course, is the original 1978 Halloween.
I won't go too much into the plot of the film because it's relatively simple and virtually everyone knows at least the gist of it, even if they've not actually seen the movie. This is one of those movies that became such a big deal that it kind of became part of the culture, really. The image of Michael Myers, or the shape as he's usually referred to in the film script, and the iconic theme song of the movie are pretty much universally known in the developed world, I think. What happened was, after the success in Europe of Precinct 13, a producer and financier named Mustafa Akkad reached out to Carpenter and suggested making a low-budget horror movie about a psychotic killer who was stalking babysitters. And Akkad thought this would get a lot of teens to come see the film, and you could make a relatively cheap movie that might still do pretty well at the box office. Carpenter said yes, provided that he would get full creative control of the film, including final cut of it, and his own name featured above the title. And Akkad decided to roll the dice on this still neophyte filmmaker. And another financier and producer who was involved with the film, named Erwin Yablons, made the additional suggestion of setting this movie on Halloween night, to kind of give it some seasonal character. Yablons made another major contribution when he suggested Donald Pleasance be cast as an actor in the film. Donald Pleasance, despite being a pretty established actor, decided to be in this low-budget movie by a relatively unknown director, in part because his daughter had apparently really liked Assault on Precinct 13. So his daughter kind of like vouched for John Carpenter. Carpenter got Deborah Hill to serve as a producer on the film, and she also collaborated with Carpenter on writing the script, which they wrote in a matter of days. The script tells the story of Michael Myers, a silent, relentless, seemingly unstoppable killer who's just sort of like an archetype of evil, an unstoppable force of nature, really, who wears a very eerie-looking Halloween mask and who stalks teenagers in his hometown on Halloween night. He killed his own sister when he was a little kid, and now 15 years later, he's out and he's going on a spree. Myers is pursued by his psychiatrist, who is played by Donald Pleasance, and Jamie Lee Curtis plays Laurie Strode in the original kind of last girl in a horror movie role. She's the best behaved and the smartest of her group of friends, and also, spoiler, ends up being the only one to survive Myers' attacks. Like George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, Halloween is a brilliant example of a very low-budget horror film that looks much better than its budget would indicate and that really reaches the level of art, but doesn't do so in any sort of like a self-conscious, pretentious sort of a way. And you can watch documentaries about the making of Halloween, and it's really interesting how they were able to do as much as they did with as few resources as they had. When you watch it, you realize that Halloween is a relatively bloodless, clean film when it comes to gore. While some people do get murdered on screen, it's not the blood and guts sort of festival like you get in so many later slasher movies. The movie was made for about $300,000, but ended up killing it at the box office, making over $75 million worldwide. Of all the Carpenter movies that have a big following, by which I mean setting aside those that flopped even to the point where Carpenter fans don't like them and there's really not a dedicated fan base for them, Halloween is the only one that I think in some ways isn't really a cult classic, 
because everything about this movie eventually went into the mainstream to the point where people who aren't into horror movies at all and who may never have even seen any of the Halloween movies are still likely to be able to recognize Michael Myers and recognize the Halloween theme music. The original Halloween is really a masterwork of minimalism in a lot of ways, simple things that really create this atmosphere of doom and tension. This is a film that relies more on suspense than it does on blood and guts. Regarding the selection of the mask that Michael Myers would wear, Carpenter said the following, quote, What was essential is that the audience had to know it was a Halloween mask that you could buy in a store, or steal in a store, and put on. I wanted it to kind of look like a gasoline attendant's jumpsuit. I wanted Myers' mask to be blank and to have this phony Halloween mask look. I always thought that the mask for evil should be an eerie, featureless mask. Tommy Lee Wallace, our production designer and art director on the film, got two masks that we could choose from. One was the cliché clown mask, and the other was a Captain Kirk mask. Basically, it didn't look anything like William Shatner, but it was a human face with his hair on. He spray-painted that pale blue, and it was creepy. It was almost as if Myers was wearing human flesh, like Ed Gain, end quote. And regarding the now iconic Halloween soundtrack, which Carpenter composed, and which is in the uncommon 5-4 time signature, Carpenter says, quote, When I was young, my father taught me 5-4 time with a pair of bongos, believe it or not. Since it was a low-budget movie, I only had three days to compose the music for Halloween. So I came up with this piece, which is basically an octave and then goes down a half-step, and I could play that forever because of the repetitive quality of the piece. Most popular music and most symphonic and classical music are not in that kind of weird time, so it sets you on edge all the more, since I used little high electronic driving notes." End quote. This film currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 95, so just a smidge behind Precinct 13. After this giant success, Carpenter directed the 1979 TV movie Elvis, which was about Elvis Presley, and this film starred actor Kurt Russell as the king, and was the first of many collaborations between Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Elvis became the most successful TV movie ever made up until that time. Now, Personally, I've never seen it, and to be honest with you, I really don't have a huge interest in seeing it. I'm sure it's fine, but I generally don't like historical biopic films, and while I like Kurt Russell as an actor, and obviously I like John Carpenter, and I do like some of Elvis's earlier music, especially the really early Sun Records stuff, I have to say a lot of his later stuff is just too cheesy for me. So, I don't know, I just don't really have an interest in throwing an hour or two into watching that movie. But it was successful, and Carpenter's career continued to rise. In 1980, John Carpenter released The Fog, which was his first film that was made with a budget that was over a million dollars, although it was only barely over a million dollars. Carpenter was once again in the horror genre, but in many ways, it was more of an old-fashioned, suspense-driven ghost story, and not really something like a slasher story, although the ghosts are killer ghosts. Carpenter and Deborah Hill worked together to come up with the idea for the movie, and they supposedly got the idea to make it while they were on a trip to England promoting Assault on Precinct 13, 
And while they were there, they visited Stonehenge, and apparently there was some really thick, crazy-looking fog, and that inspired them to write a supernatural thriller script centered around the idea of a fog that moves around and brings with it, you know, terrors and so on. Once they got back to the States, they drove up the coast of California until they found a place with a perfect location that was kind of an isolated little town on some rugged coastline that had a perfect lighthouse to set the movie in. The real town was actually called Inverness, and Carpenter liked it so much he eventually bought a house there. However, prior to the start of filming of The Fog, Carpenter and Deborah Hill broke up, and Carpenter ended up marrying actress Adrienne Barbeau, who is actually one of the stars of The Fog. She plays a radio DJ who broadcasts out of a lighthouse. And this was apparently a tough time for Deborah Hill, you know, having all this going on, although she did continue to work with Carpenter on this film and several others. Carpenter also brought in Jamie Lee Curtis to be in The Fog, and perhaps surprisingly, despite the massive success of Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis had had trouble finding more work as an actress. So Carpenter was happy to bring her in to play one of the starring roles in The Fog. And also Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, who famously was stabbed to death in the shower scene in Psycho, is in the movie as well. So The Fog tells the story of a small, isolated coastal town in California that is getting haunted by an eerie fog, which brings with it killer ghosts who are basically trying to get revenge for a crime that was committed against them long ago by the town's founders. As with Halloween, The Fog is more about suspense than it is about gore, and oftentimes the evil entities are just implied, and when they are shown, they're mostly just depicted as dark figures or silhouettes. The film was pretty successful. It took in over $20 million at the box office on a budget of just over $1 million, so pretty profitable, and it currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 72. Personally, I like it better than that. While it's not the greatest movie ever, I think this film is still in many ways a masterpiece of suspense and tension and clever minimalism and creating ominous mood, which all my favorite Carpenter films are really good at just creating an ominous mood. And overall, personally, I'd give The Fog a B plus or maybe even an A minus. A vastly inferior remake of The Fog came out in 2005, by the way, the same year as the OK remake of Precinct 13. Now, at this point in his career, Carpenter was really on a winning streak of successful films, and so his next film would be his first to feature a multi-million dollar budget, though still one that was relatively modest compared to giant Hollywood films. And this film, of course, would be 1981's Escape from New York. This film is set in what, for 1981, was the near future of 1997. In writing it, Carpenter seems to have basically projected the trends of rising crime in the 70s and 80s outward indefinitely, although we now know this trend in real life kind of fizzled out by the mid-90s, and violent crime actually started to decline. But, you know, assuming those trends were going to continue indefinitely, Carpenter created a fictional 1997 America that had become a police state and which was also in a big war. And in this... 1997, Manhattan had been walled off and turned into a giant free-range open-air prison for the most dangerous criminals. The movie starts off with Air Force One getting hijacked and the President of the United States escaping but crashing into New York City. 
and then ending up falling into the hands of dangerous criminals. The president, by the way, is played by Donald Pleasance, who depicts it rather comically as a completely useless, cowardly sort of a douchebag who ends up losing his mind. Kurt Russell stars as Snake Plissken, who is a war hero turned criminal who's being simultaneously coerced and bribed into going in to try to rescue the president. If Snake fails, he'll blow up, but if he succeeds, he's promised that he'll get a pardon for everything he's done. Now, I'll kind of leave it at that as far as the plot. That's the basic setup, and it's a lot of fun. It has some iconic scenes and lines, and it's an enjoyable action flick, still relatively small budget, with a lot of creative use of practical effects and things like miniatures and so forth that makes the movie look like it's a bigger budget movie than it really was. Among my favorite scenes in the movie are things like Snake flying in on a high glider to land in the World Trade Center, and the Duke of New York driving around in the ultimate pimp mobile, and of course there's the epic deathmatch fight. If you've seen the movie, you know just what I'm talking about. The film is an interesting mixture of near-future, by early 80s standards, sci-fi dystopia with exploitation-style action and some good dark humor. One interesting little detail that always catches my eye whenever I watch this movie regards the military-style cops, which, of course, is one prediction Carpenter got dead on, by the way. Even though he was wrong about crime getting that out of hand, he was right that the police would become more and more militaristic. But anyway... You'll notice that the militarized cops are carrying M16s, but with the handguards removed, I guess to make them look more unusual and futuristic. Of course, anyone who knows anything about shooting will know that if you do that, if you remove the handguard from an M16 or AR-15 style rifle, that makes the whole thing pretty impractical and even dangerous to use, because after shooting a few rounds off, your barrel is going to become so scorching hot that you can't possibly hold it without burning the hell out of your hand. But anyway, I guess it was a creative, low-budget way to try and make things look a little more futuristic. Carpenter claims that he was thinking about a Clint Eastwood-style character when he was writing Snake Plissken, and Kurt Russell says that that's what he was doing when he was acting as Snake Plissken. Basically, it's Kurt Russell doing a Clint Eastwood impression. And in many ways, Plissken is an awesome, libertarian, anarchist, anti-hero sort of a figure. He's up there along with... Malcolm Reynolds and the original Han Solo, I think, in terms of just sort of rebellious anti-heroes. You gotta love the fact that Snake is in trouble for, of all things, robbing a Federal Reserve depository. Now that's a nice crime to be doing. Not that I'm advocating anybody do this, of course, but I'm saying, if one has to be guilty of a significant crime, that's one of the ones where, like, I don't really think you're a bad person. But anyway... In an interview, Kurt Russell once said the following about Snake Plissken and John Carpenter, quote, I know that a large part of John's personality and my personality exist in Snake Plissken. It's a large part of who John and I are. There's no question about it. We are singular men. We are independent-minded. We border on anarchistic, end quote. Adrian Barbeau, who was still married to Carpenter at the time, plays the role of Maggie, a woman in New York who helps Snake. And Isaac Hayes plays the Duke of New York City, who's the biggest crime boss in the prison and who ultimately is found to be holding the president. 
Like I said, the film has some very clever practical effects that were done relatively cheaply and that actually look less bad and less fake than some of the CGI effects that are used in many later action films. The film was actually done, if I recall correctly, in St. Louis, not in New York. So St. Louis filled the role of a big, ugly, decaying city that was willing to let Carpenter kind of do whatever he wanted to there. In contrast to New York City, which would have been much too difficult and expensive at the time for Carpenter to film this relatively low-budget movie in. The film was a pretty strong success upon its release. It was like a B-movie that was much better than most B-movies, something that you could say about a lot of Carpenter's films, come to think about it. On a $6 million budget, the film made over $25 million at the box office, and it currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 86. The success of Escape from New York caused Carpenter to get bigger offers, and he ended up contracting with Universal Studios to do a remake of one of his favorite films from his childhood, and one that has a brief cameo, by the way, the original, playing on TV in the film Halloween, by the way, and that, of course, is The Thing, which came out in 1982. It was loosely based on and inspired by the 1951 sci-fi film The Thing from Another World, which, by the way, was directed by Carpenter's biggest filmmaking hero, the director Howard Hawks. In coming up with the script, Carpenter not only looked at the original movie, but he dug deeply into the story that had inspired it, which was a John Campbell novella entitled Who Goes There?, which was written back in the 1930s. This would be Carpenter's first really big-budget film. It's also the first time that Carpenter had a lot of gore in a movie, and I think one may reasonably argue that this may be the goriest film Carpenter has ever made. This might in part reflect that he had a big budget, so was able to really dig in with the special effects, but it also might reflect the fact that by this time, the horror movie genre in general was becoming increasingly loaded with gore. The Thing stars Kurt Russell, but has a very strong ensemble cast of good actors, including Wilford Brimley, back when he was doing acting other than just diabetes commercials, and also Keith David, who's got, in my opinion, one of the coolest voices of all time. Imagine if I had Keith David's voice, how big the Dangerous History podcast would be. I'd probably have millions of viewers by now if my voice was that cool. If I could have an epic voiceover guy narrating my life, I'm one of the few people who wouldn't choose Morgan Freeman, much as I like him. I'd pick Keith David, who, by the way, would also co-star in another Carpenter film a few years later, one that'll be covered as part of part two, which is the excellent movie They Live. But getting back to The Thing. The Thing is set at an isolated American research outpost in Antarctica, where the crew are being stalked and killed by a shape-shifting monster alien that can mimic its victims. As such, the film becomes a masterpiece of suspense and paranoia, as the crew of the research station, they don't really know who's really themselves and who might be the monster. And like I've kind of already said, there's some real visceral, perhaps one might even argue at times over-the-top gore effects. All practical, of course, no CGI nonsense. This is back in the dark days when, if you wanted special effects, you had to figure out some way to make them. Carpenter said in a 2003 interview about this film, quote, The thing has to do, essentially, even though there is this extraterrestrial virus, with losing your humanity and losing humaneness. 
That's an old science fiction tradition. On one level, The Thing is purely a science fiction movie and a monster movie. But on another level, it's about being afraid that the people you are interacting with are not human. And I think you see this in every personal relationship. In every personal relationship, there is a point in which you have to use trust and faith. It's like, do you really care for me and my well-being, or are you using me for some purpose? End quote. The thing got fairly poor reviews and did relatively poorly at the box office when it was released. Many people attribute this in part to the fact that it was released at the same time as E.T., which appealed to a much, much broader audience, and of course, strongly contrasted with The Thing by portraying aliens in a very benevolent light. In its opening weekend, The Thing came in eighth place, not only behind E.T., but also even behind Poltergeist, which had already been out for about a month. On a budget of $15 million, it brought in a total of just a bit over $19 million at the box office. So it didn't lose money, but it was considered kind of a disappointment, and it made less money than Halloween, and it made less money than Escape from New York, and those had both had much smaller budgets. Of course, in time, the thing would eventually develop a major cult following once it started to get out on VHS and later DVD. And it's generally considered easily one of Carpenter's top five best films by horror fans in general and Carpenter fans in particular. However, at the time, the initial lackluster reception and performance was pretty hard on Carpenter and negatively impacted his career for a while, and he'd have to kind of revert back to doing relatively low-budget films for his next few movies. Carpenter later said of this, quote, It was like being in a boxing ring and somebody is punching you and you don't have anything to fight back with. I had a job at Universal and I got fired off it because of the thing. That was the first time I was fired from a movie as a director. Nobody wanted to hire me for a job after that because of the reputation of The Thing. Not only was it a box office failure in their eyes, but it was an artistic failure. I was treated like slime. I was the guy who was doing this kind of pornographic violence. End quote. However, looking back from two decades later at the movie, Carpenter says, quote, I love the movie a great deal. I never stopped loving The Thing. I think it's just a wonderful film. It's my favorite film of my own. End quote. And while it did take a lot of critics a while to come around, they now seem to agree with Carpenter, and the film holds a pretty good Rotten Tomatoes score of 83. And that's where we're going to have to leave this episode. Next time, we'll pick up on Carpenter's career after The Thing, and like I said, we'll also dig more into some of his signature techniques and themes and see if we can maybe sketch something of a worldview that's described by his body of work. But the final crafting of that episode is going to have to wait until after my Harvard trip. In closing, just let me wish you and yours a most excellent Halloween for 2018, or if you're listening to this long after I released it, I hope that whatever your next Halloween is, it is most triumphant.
Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Mike, Alex, Kyle, Jacob, and Andrew. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org donate, and you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including the link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History Podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. 
So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.